Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snack Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. You're listening to the Revenge of the Birds podcast, part of the SB Nation Podcast Network. Hosted by Blake Murphy 7, all about your Arizona Cardinals. You can manage the Revenge of the Birds podcast. I'm your host, Blake Murphy. You can find me on Twitter at BlakeMurphy7. And today we're talking about the first round of the NFL draft. Talk about the Arizona Cardinals making a surprise selection for many. Because it wasn't even a draft pick, uh, Cardinals end up trading their first round pick for uh, the Ravens wide receiver Marquise Brown. Uh, this had been hinted at for some of the local sports insiders, such as John Gambadoro. There was also uh, early ideas in the offseason that the Cardinals were looking at multiple options uh, for players to be able to bring in in free agency. We know that they're looking at the likes of a Juju Smith-Schuster. Also know that the Cardinals were definitely sniffing around um, a couple of other positions, such as pass rusher, sniffing around bringing in someone for the corner market. And in the end, they go with a wide receiver who, in some cases, there's, I think in a lot of different ways, a natural fit for the Cardinals, maybe even more natural than any other player in this draft. And that goes without saying that many people were looking at a potential trade-up for the top receiver, um, either a Jamison Williams, maybe taking a Jahan Dotson type of player. And instead what we see is a player who's probably got the 4-2 speed, a little quicker, a little bit more of a deep threat than Jahan Dotson, a player who is going to have um, uh, health, unlike the likes of Jamison Williams, who's not going to be available perhaps until October, maybe even the likes of November. And of course, goes without saying, Cardinals are able to acquire this player who is close friends, uh, maybe even, I would say, best friends, as described um, by the likes of Justina Anderson and the former Cardinals beat writer Kyle Odegaard. So, what are the implications for this? Well, we can talk about the rest of the NFL draft and how the first round went in order to kind of set up why this move was made. And most of it's pretty obvious. You see the top 10 picks go off the board. Drake London being the first wide receiver taken at 8. A few pass rushers, some offensive linemen. And then the run on wide receivers hits, and it hits hard. Garrett Wilson, Chris Olave, Jamison Williams go in back-to-back-to-back picks with the Saints trading up to 11 and the Detroit Lions trading up 
from pick 32 all the way into the top 12. Now, for those who wondered, the draft trade chart to jump up to this pick where the Vikings were at compared to what I had said was this was going to be the spot as far as what Arizona could get up to. This is the spot where uh, the Cardinals would be giving up a future first-round pick. Now, a future first-round pick is worth essentially the same as the pick would be in a round lower. So you're talking about, all right, first-round pick is basically worth pick 55. That's just the way that it goes. That's the draft trade chart. The idea is having a pick for a player now is more valuable than a pick and a player in the future. Uh, unless, of course, you happen to be a rebuilding team. So, what we see at least is those receivers all go off the board. You see Jordan Davis traded up for by the Eagles, and then the Ravens are on the clock. Now, clearly, when we look at the rest of how this draft went, you can see that with Jahan Dotson going at pick number 16, talk about Traylon Burks going at pick 18. Those were the six wide receivers taken in the first round of the NFL draft. There were not any receivers taken after that. So what that really shows, I think, in a lot of ways is that by no matter what type of a margin, the Cardinals would have had to have traded up if they wanted a receiver in this year's draft. Uh, they also would have had to have traded up if they wanted the likes of a Trent McDuffie, one of the other players on their board. I was not as high on him as other players. I think that he's a player who, in a lot of different regards, you try him at corner, but I think he may settle into safety long term. It just feels like that for a player with all of the talent he has to not have the same amount of production uh, was unique. Uh, you can see at least that the Cardinals at their pick, the Ravens trade back again. Uh, Kair Elam, a player who I think I liked for Arizona, um, goes at that pick. And then Tyler Linderbaum would have probably been the pick for the Cardinals had they stayed put and not made this trade. Most likely he would have probably sat for an entire season, taken over at center a year later, or he would be set to compete at left guard with Justin Pugh or with their new signing, Will Hernandez, at right guard. Either way, it was a pick that the Cardinals chose to make, which is an aggressive win-now pick. It also takes out a chance of not necessarily busting, um, but it essentially gives the Cardinals and Steve Keim a player who is a proven commodity in the NFL. Now, what we'll at least be able to talk about, of course, is some of the negatives, and this is probably the reaction because there was two types of reactions that seemed to happen. There were people who are very much, I could think of the idea of um, looking at the Cardinals, looking at their needs, how their offensive structure works, how Kyler Murray seems to work, and could kind of say that in all accounts, it was a great fit. This was something that I said was back in 2019 when he was drafted. My hope was that he would fall to the end of the first round and that the Cardinals would be able to trade up using perhaps even an extra pick from the Josh Rosen pick to get the likes of Marquise Brown. And I think we can see that this is what Arizona would have loved to have done, but uh, Marquise Brown was selected with the 25th pick by the Ravens. He was the only first-round wide receiver taken. Um, there's some other receivers taken that I'll talk about in a bit uh, that year. And they end up taking Andy Isabella, another short, small, speedy, deep-threat receiver who did not work out well for the team. This is all in a lot of different ways. One of the avenues that you can say at the Cardinals have wanted to build their team. 
looking back to the 2019 draft, you look at Kyler Murray, you look at adding the likes of an Andy Isabella, a player who would be able to go deep from the slot, and then having a large outside threat in Hakeem Butler. And I think that the Cardinals have wanted to build this mold for Kyler Murray. They've wanted to build something similar to the offense he had at Oklahoma for a very long time. They wanted to have a large possession receiver on the outside who can make plays, be able to have a speedy, uh, deep threat who could operate probably out of the slot or on the other side of the field as an outside receiver, and be able to uh, give Murray at least the ability to have a good pass-catching tight end who can make plays over the middle, have a nice player who's able to block, and of course a staple of effective running backs. And it did not go according to plan year one. Cardinals did not have a hit in Andy Isabella. They did not have a hit uh, on the outside with the likes of Hakeem Butler. They ended up having Christian Kirk as their deep threat, who was fine but not necessarily a deep threat type in the NFL. Really, he's most effective as a slot receiver. And we didn't get to see that until this final year. Christian Kirk, of course, has had one of the biggest impacts, I think you could argue, on the NFL along with the likes of a Devontae Adams getting paid maybe somewhat closer to $30 million a year as the top receiver in the NFL. And the Packers were not willing to pay it. They instead said, you know what? We find you replaceable. Our quarterback is more important. We're going to trade you, pick, uh, reacquire picks, and be able to move forward with a cheaper receiver. This seems to have been the case for some teams have been not willing to pay their top receivers, other teams have been more than willing to not just pay those uh, receivers, but even trade for those type of players and pay them. And I think that's with how you're going to build your team and build your identity is a big part of that. Now, the Ravens, clearly, Marquise Brown has mentioned um, in a deleted tweet, which I posted that he talked about how uh, you don't want to basically go out there and misuse your soldiers, as he called it, um, like lining up every single week and not being used, he felt like that he was underutilized by the Ravens. Now, of course, this is during, I believe, his first or second season, I should say, with the team especially. The Ravens have always been a run-heavy team. People have not been the happiest, reportedly, with their scheme. Um, This is the same type of scheme, I believe, that Colin Kaepernick has had under Greg Roman, which has been successful but is very run-heavy with the quarterback. Now, Brown was utilized heavily last year. He had, uh, I believe it was well over uh, 140 targets. Um, You're talking about at least a player who was able to carry a lot of the load. Now, that's not necessarily uh, going to be uh, a hefty, hefty load. Uh, Brown, at least, has only had, for when you look at his career, uh, he ended up with 1,000 yards for the first time last season. This, of course, would be in 16 games played, 1,008 yards, 91 catches. Now, 91 catches, at least, when you're talking about, you know, and having that many targets, 146. DeAndre Hopkins in 2020 had 160 targets. So you're talking about at least either wide receiver one, wide receiver two levels of usage. Talking about the biggest difference as far as expectations, I think, being the depth in the passing. Now, Brown was utilized downfield a lot, I think, his first two years. Um, 
obviously wasn't utilized as much downfield as last year, some of that being the injury to Lamar Jackson. In 2019, uh, which is the year I believe that Lamar Jackson won the MVP award, he only had about 584 yards, starting in 11 games with 46 catches, caught about 12 yards per reception. You look at 2020, his numbers improved. And 58 catches for 760 yards, 8 touchdowns. This last year, he was essentially the lone receiver standing with multiple injuries to the likes of a first-round pick in Rashawn Bateman, injuries to other players as well. He ended up getting about 10 yards per reception, which was fine. Overall, to this part of his career, he's essentially been, for lack of a better term, underperforming. So there's a level of proven, of talent, of performing, but a lot of underperforming compared to people's expectations, particularly when you're looking at some of the other receivers that were taken in that draft. For example, A.J. Brown. He was traded this draft, um, was apparently wanting to have a huge mega contract. He ended up getting an incredible contract extension, uh, a massive contract. Jalen Hurts is working out with him, at least this offseason. We've seen that there's relationships between quarterbacks and receivers. It seems to be kind of the new thing in the NBA, guys wanting to play with their buddies. That's just one of the ways that we've seen. Now, this is a $100 million uh, contract over four years, about $50 million guaranteed. So it's about $25 million annually. That's going to be a lot of pressure to perform, but you talk about the fact of why that deal has taken place, and one of the reasons why is because A.J. Brown was drafted in the second round of that year. There's not necessarily a fifth-year option where teams have an extra year of control. He's wanted to make sure going into the last year of his contract to not uh, you know, have to go through a contract year, get hurt, and then suddenly you're back on the street playing for essentially your life and livelihood players want to have more security. I think that's one of the reasons why the Cardinals were willing to make this trade is because they're understanding, hey, we're not going to have to worry about paying Marquise Brown until after next year. We're going to get to have him for one year, see what he can do, and see how it will fit. And I think that that fit is going to be in a spot that will, um, in one case, always get compared to this A.J. Brown deal because the Eagles gave up pick number 18. Cardinals gave up pick 23. Brown has had a much more productive season and at a much bigger size. Uh, truly, he has been one of the, when healthy, best playmakers in the NFL, was a guy the Cardinals passed on. Now, the usage, of course, is he's been utilized as a big slot receiver, a big play machine. He's been able to be used outside. Uh, he also was more of the wide receiver one mold. You'd probably be looking at taking A.J. Brown and saying, all right, look at his youth, look at the contract. We're probably going to see the Cardinals move on from DeAndre Hopkins in a few years. And I'm not sure if Arizona's ready to do that yet. We'll, we'll see. Uh, we've seen not necessarily that the team has wanted to move on, but more just that this is how the NFL has worked when it's come to paying these receivers Many teams have chosen to not pay $30 million a year, to not pay a wide receiver to $20 million a year even. So the way that this, of course, fits with the player, you can say, hey, they've got a staple now of players that all seem to complement each other very well. Talked about how the player would have probably liked for the Cardinals wouldn't have been Jamison Williams, but it would have been someone like Jamison Williams with perhaps a bit better hands, uh, 
perhaps a little bit um, of a lack of, I guess, more availability. You're looking for a player essentially just like Hollywood Brown would have been. A guy who's able to add speed on the outside, be able to give you a deep threat, uh, be able to get yards after the catch on different underneath and screen routes, being able to make sure that um, you got a guy who maybe is not necessarily being that contested catch sort of player, but is able to dissect and slice through zone coverage. Now, it's a different type of player than a DeAndre Hopkins, a guy who can slice through zone coverage, and if you try to match up one-on-one, he's going to beat you. You're going to need a second guy to deal with a healthy DeAndre Hopkins. You also can see exactly in how the Cardinals with Rondale Moore and some of their sets and utilizing Zach Ertz as a pass-catching target kind of puts Ertz in that Grant Calcaterra mold, and it puts a three-level sort of dimension for the Cardinals. You can see Marquise Brown going deep. We saw how Hopkins finally got utilized as a deep threat, but really made his living in a lot of ways, being able to take short underneath passes, being able to work in the intermediate and in the red zone. Rondell Moore, meanwhile, has been making a lot of plays close to the line of scrimmage, being able to be kind of that tough guy of trying to get yards after the catch, breaking tackles. And in some ways, having that 4-3 speed, though not quite the same speed, I would argue, as a Hollywood Brown, especially when it comes to the play speed, there's a difference between being able to be an effective deep threat with the routes, with the abilities, and then the, I guess you could say, capabilities of playing to some of those strengths. You're not going to put Rondale Moore, I think, and have him run down routes all game. Hollywood Brown, on the other hand, he could basically fly down and beat a player on a nine round. You're going to have to start allowing for a safety over the top. And that's what's really, I think, a key that people are leaving out from here. Part of the reason why Williams has been such in demand is having a guy that you have to essentially account for with that deep 40-yard bomb is something that's hugely important to an offense. Um Marquise Brown has, uh, through the last few years, had the most amount of 40-yard touchdowns of any, uh, I should say not 40-yard touchdowns, uh, I believe it's even 40-yard-plus plays of anyone in the NFL. This is, of course, receiving. Uh, We're not talking about Jonathan Taylor with his rushing plays. But he's been incredibly effective at being a deep threat. He's gotten banged up a time or two. Um, He's had at least a couple of areas as far as with drops, typical areas, you'd say. But... When you put that with Kyler Murray, one of the most efficient deep passers in the NFL, one of the most accurate deep passers in the NFL, especially on passes of 40 yards or more, you start to suddenly see an interesting marriage that shows perhaps the offense that Hollywood was in was not necessarily the best for his services. It was utilizing him, but perhaps not utilizing him as much as an Arizona might move him around the field. Now, this isn't to say that we're going to suddenly see Hollywood Brown's production spike, but I think it might be a place where you could see him going from a 400, a 500, a 1,000-yard receiver to a guy who probably walks his way into a 1,000-yard season each year with a little bit of a bump from Christian Kirk, but also is really and radically changing the way that teams defend you. If you're putting the likes of... Um, say, Hollywood Brown, Rondale Moore, DeAndre Hopkins, Zach Ertz onto the field, having two guys with that 4-3 speed who could stretch the field, being able to open up underneath, will be 
something we've not seen for the Cardinals. We saw how effective Christian Kirk was in his slot role last year. They give those same roles to a Hollywood Brown or to a Rondale Moore. The idea that you can have is teams are ready for some of the slot fade routes, teams being ready for some of those outside plays. It gives you another weapon to go along with helping DeAndre Hopkins get some of those favorable matchups. Teams want to be able to move toward uh, blanketing their coverage, trying to line up, be able to see if they can take away some of those receivers to the outside. Running a mismatch weapon such as Zach Ertz at tight end up the middle, that opens up all sorts of things for your offense. This is something that I have talked about for the Cardinals having as a need, especially for this Cliff Kingsbury air raid offense for the last few years. In 2021, we finally got to see what the air raid offense would look like with four competent receivers. We got to see how with having A.J. Green as being a jump ball threat on the outside, and he's coming back, of course, for another year, being able to use Christian Kirk finally in the slot, being able to have a guy in Rondale Moore who is able to make the horizontal game work by forcing teams to come down into the box by being able to get some of those yards after catch as an extension of the running game and taking a few yards off of Kyler Murray being essentially in a lot of ways an outlet where Murray would be able to instead of running for 40 50 yards dump a pass off to Rondale he's able to take a hit that your quarterback doesn't have to we really got to see the first half of the season Cardinals had a dramatically potent offense there's a good chance that if their offensive line is able to remain healthy, that they can have a likewise potent offense. And on a separate level, people are talking about this also is a, in some case, olive branch from the Cardinals to Kyler Murray. We've seen Kyler Murray give an olive branch to the Cardinals by restoring his Instagram, reaffirming his commitment to playing in Arizona. He has not said anything himself negative about the team. It's kind of left that up to his agent to essentially take on that bad cop sort of a role. And he even committed himself to the Cardinals when other players such as Patrick Peterson uh, on the podcast uh, with other players like Colin Cowherd, he essentially kind of offered and said to Arizona, hey, I am wanting to play here. I want to win Super Bowls here. Let's get this done. Cardinals, this, you could say, is their olive branch back to Kyler Murray. And in some cases, maybe it's less an olive branch and more just the way things happen to have worked with this team. Murray and Brown have wanted to seemingly play together. Uh, this just has been one of the avenues we've seen. Uh, you know, those who game together, play together, it seems would be the case. Um, they were at the Twitch streaming bowl, as some have noted earlier, talking to each other. Um, Kyler originally also wanted his... Uh, former teammate C.D. Lamb to be one of the guys who's there on his team. Uh, they weren't obviously the same level of friendship as someone like Marquise Brown, who was training with Kyla Murray in Dallas this offseason. At the end of the day, I think that there's a lot of positives, and a lot of that comes down to the fact that the NFL, in a lot of ways, while it's a business, it is a business of relationships. And putting these two relationships together has seemingly strengthened and been in a lot of ways the splash that people had wanted the Cardinals to make. And that may be the case. If you had told people a few months ago that the Cardinals were going to trade a draft pick 
for Hollywood Brown and they give up, say, you know, a second round pick, pretty much everyone counts that as a win. And that shifts into this part of the negative, which is, of course, the A.J. Brown comparisons aside. You can look again, as like I said, the major factors there, the slight difference of personality fit, slight scheme fit, maybe a bit as far as with payment, that fifth year option for Marquise Brown, helping keep the Cardinals in what seems to be at least a manageable trial period. That's always going to be the barometer to be compared to. In a lot of ways, it's the barometer that the Cardinals had after taking Andy Isabella and Byron Murphy over the likes of not just an A.J. Brown, but the likes of a D.K. Metcalf as well. So what are some of the negatives? Well, the biggest one, of course, is going to be the time frame, the factor, the cost that comes in. Because I think you can make an argument that Marquise Brown currently may not be worth a first-round pick. People have pointed out that while it was only a first-round pick, and hey, the Ravens sent the Cardinals back a third. Congrats, Cardinals now have three picks on day two. They have essentially replaced their fourth-round pick. And if you want to look at pick 100, you could even say, hey, if the Cardinals had a fourth-round pick, say pick 115, pick 120, and they wanted to trade up for a player in the third round to get to pick 100, it would probably cost a fifth-round pick. Cardinals have essentially, in that case, replaced the picks that they gave up for Marco Wilson and for Zach Ertz. But to give up a first-round pick for a player who's turning 25 years old this year, and you have only two years, essentially, of a controlled cost minus you know any sort of franchise tag, a lot of people are wondering if that cost was too much. And that'll be one of the places of having to grade it at the end of the next few years. If Marquise Brown struggles to stay healthy, underperforms, then things could go south very, very quickly. On paper, however, when you look at stuff, it's like it feels like it's one of those things that should work, especially when you consider that the Cardinals got a player who's more proven than any of the rookies who went in the top 16 to 18 picks this year. And with how they would have had to trade up for one of those wide receivers, you can say, all right, Let's take a look then at least who would have been on the board, what would have been the case, and I think that the other person that's going to be compared to this is going to be Baltimore Raven Tyler Linderbaum. He's a center. I talked earlier in the podcast about how he would have sat for a year. What it comes down into the NFL is not just necessarily about cost control, but about being able to utilize talent. And what we've seen with the Cardinals, and this is perhaps the biggest negative is that this is essentially another factor where Steve Keim has chosen, because he's not able to acquire a certain player, to give up a draft pick to get that player. And he's given up a higher draft pick than any of the picks that were given up for a Devontae Adams. You think about the Packers getting uh, pick number 22, essentially. Uh, You think about A.J. Brown going with a 18th overall pick. And you see, of course, a Tyreek Hill, that being the main one, being a late first round pick that was given up for him. People feel like the Cardinals overpaid and are then adding a player that, of course, are going to have to pay in just a couple of years. How much is that first round contract truly worth? And I think in a lot of ways, the question, of course, then calls back to, is this a spot where the Cardinals are having to give up picks for these players because there's not really a guarantee that they would work out? 
because of the past history that Steve Kime has had of drafting, let's just call it like it is, busts or underperforming players in round one? The answer to that is, yeah, that's basically where I think you are. It also could be said it's an emotional decision. I've said the Cardinals were almost a vibes team last year at times where uh, the comment of a 33-year-old A.J. Green being who he was, the Cardinals essentially being able to um, take a James Conner off the street and turn him into a player who was out touchdowning Derrick Henry week in and week out, uh, being able to have a 5'10 quarterback who's just able to get away from sacks, being able to throw the ball deep. It's one of those areas where it feels like it's surprising that it should work. But at the end of the day, it's about acquiring great players. And I think that's the biggest reason why if I had to choose between saying this is a negative, you're basically overspending for a player who's not performed, there's not a guarantee that he is going to perform better, versus looking at the positives that this trade would bring, I think I lean toward the positive. Because I think that the draft ultimately is about not just getting cost control. I mean, that's the best case scenario, but it's about being able to add talent to your team. And we've seen the Cardinals have struggled to with Steve Keim, and for the life of me, I would love to see the Cardinals be able to improve their scouting department enough to be able to bring in players that they're able to then trade away, get a first-round pick in return, and be able to essentially turn the clock back and continue to be able to add talent to their team. Instead, we see the Cardinals giving up uh, more than they gave up for DeAndre Hopkins, for a player that they'll probably have to pay in about two years. But it keeps their quarterback happy, and in a lot of ways, I do think that it may not be completely transformative for the offense, such as seeing them go from, you know, a bottom feeder to a high end. That's that's reserved for quarterbacks. But I think it's a spot that checks pretty much every box you were looking for. The only box it didn't check necessarily was the cost. If you are the Cardinals and you had an edge rusher that you liked, talk about one of those in just a second, that you can take at 23 or here an offensive lineman, then perhaps you're able to see a couple of needs get addressed or fixed. I think the Cardinals, the way that they viewed stuff, and for better or worse, I've said that there are things that we can critique Arizona about. Like if someone says, hey, the Cardinals like this player, well, that may not be a good thing compared to some of their draft picks. But in this situation where you're talking about looking at a player who they like, who is on another team, I think that it's easy to say that you can trust the Cardinals pro personnel because look what they've done as far as trades in the past few years. Not just Hopkins and Hudson, but it feels like that even free agents they've brought in, they've been able to identify solid players that fit a role for them that have been able to transform their offense. Now, they've paid some of those players as well, and... I don't know how you're going to be able to continue to keep trading picks for players and paying guys without having, uh, like the Los Angeles Rams did, a solid day three scouting department that can find some stud players that are not necessarily stars, but can flesh out the rest of your roster. That's one of the areas that the Cardinals, we will see if they're able to do with their sixth and seventh round picks. Um, because that has never been the case for them under Steve Kime. They've occasionally found one or two players, but it feels like it's been a long time. The last example I can think of, at least, and this will be a good one, is the Chase Edmonds pick of a running back round four. 
But Josh Jones has still had to live up to some of the expectations. We've seen them mostly rely on veterans or former first-round picks for their line. We saw Marco Wilson be a decent player last year, but there's still at least a jury out for that. If the Cardinals are able to get their rookie scouting portfolio improved, I think this team will take off as a whole. Now, let's talk a little bit about day two. We've got quite a few talents that are going to be left on the board. The biggest thing I think that you have to look at, of course, is clearly that the Cardinals passing on taking the likes of a Tyler Linderbaum, and with the Cardinals not taking an edge rusher, you're talking about now having multiple needs that need to be essentially addressed and having the picks to do so now, but not necessarily ones that can be in the right spot. So let's take a look here with the picks that they have available. You've got the Cardinals, of course, picking at 55, picking at 87, and then picking, of course, with another late third rounder at pick 100. The place the Cardinals, I think, could go here may not be what fans would look for. I think there's a lot of fans would look at the edge rusher position wanting to get a replacement for Chandler Jones. Arizona didn't see a Chandler Jones replacement truly there. Uh, they were not one of the teams that liked a George Karloftis. Uh, there was a Jermaine Jones who fell all the way down the draft board. He clearly was a player that it seems that they were not going to be willing to trade up for because he fell far enough down they preferred Hollywood Brown. There's a few players that are going to be there in round two that I think we can go through here, and here's some of the names at least that you can talk about. First one that stands out is one that may go within the first two or three picks. Maybe it might even be the first pick of the next round. That's Arnold Ebicady, Penn State Edge, an explosive, accelerating player. The best way I can think of him is imagine a Marcus Golden type of juice with a bit more bend uh, and explosiveness. He also is like Marcus Golden in that he's not a great uh, run stuffer. And at 250 pounds, you usually will see guys who are stout against the run be at least be able to put on about 10 to 15 more pounds, be able to be just as effective. Uh, he's a pass rusher who I honestly think has a higher upside than the likes of a George Karloftis, though Karloftis would be perhaps the better overall player given how he can hold against the run. That's not what Arizona looks for, though, in their pass rushers. They prefer to just have guys that they can pin their ear back and go and get sacks, having some of that speed. It's hurt them at times as teams have taken advantage of them. But at the end of the day, it is ultimately a pass rushing league. I think that you would have to trade up for him, and it would probably cost you at least pick 55 and pick 100. He may not even be in a spot where you're able to jump up that high. It's unfortunate, but that's one of the things, at least, that happens with the team is that you've got guys who fall to round two, and everyone loves to get those round one talents that are in round two, but that's not always going to be the case. So right now when you're looking at, of course, a draft value trade chart to say, what would it cost at least for the Cardinals to be able to jump up? Well, Look, of course, at draft picks for this year. I don't think that they would give up a pick next year. It just does not seem like Steve Kime's style. Maybe if he needed to give up multiple thirds, it'd be a possibility. But if they want to be able to jump up at least and get to 
place where they could be able to afford an Arnold, Eb Arnold Ebiketti, you'd probably be having to look at jumping up to around pick 41, 42 would be what you'd have with pick 100. Now, they really, really liked him. You could theoretically get him by giving up your pick at 87. According to this is kind of using what's called the Rich Hill trade chart. It's essentially been mapped out to be the closest thing that NFL teams have used before. Using pick 101 and pick 87, you'd probably be able to get up to a little bit higher. You're probably talking about somewhere in that 35 to 39 type of range. Uh, perhaps it'd be 36 to 39 would be the range because of the Seattle Seahawks pick at 40 and pick 41. There's going to be quite a few teams looking to make some moves up. I think that you're not going to see Abikati fall all the way to pick 55. He's been rumored to be a first-round type of player. I don't think that's going to be the case. You do have a quarterback who's falling and will probably get taken early in uh, day two in Malik Willis. He was not the first quarterback taken. That was Kenny Pickett. Um, you're going to be looking at least not, of course, at taking a quarterback, but hoping that you see one or two quarterbacks players that teams jump up for early so that will push a talent down to you oh, some names that have been connected to the cardinals some names that make sense uh, they did at least i believe talk to travis jones from uh, i believe it was the senior bowl this would be essentially your big gapping nose tackle um, helping to stop the run um, one player at least that's been mentioned from john gambador and this was a little bit of a surprise to me Kenneth Walker, if the Cardinals would prefer Kenneth Walker over Brees Hall, that would be interesting because some people have said that he reminds them of Garrison Hurst, a former Cardinal player. He also, I think, looks a little bit and reminds a bit of Felix Jones, former first-round pick, was about a 5'9", 5'10", 215. He doesn't quite seem to match up with that Ladanian Tomlinson, 5'11", 225-pounder who can make catches out of the backfield. He was a Heisman candidate this year. It would be an interesting avenue because the way that I view the running back position is that you want to hit your running backs and take a first-round running back talent in round two. Your goal is to find that next Jonathan Taylor because what you can do then is you don't have to essentially spend that first round and have that fifth-year option be there versus a more valuable position, especially because if you've got a receiver who says after three years, I want to get paid, you can at least be able to say you've got an extra year on your contract. We're going to push this off. And you at least have a good enough reason to. It doesn't always work that way. But as you can see with how all of these round two receivers that have been dealt, <laughs> just being able to have that extra year of contract control is a little bit of leverage for a team. Why not do that with running backs? Well, you look at the Chase Edmonds approach. The Cardinals drafted Chase Edmonds. He played for them for four years, took on a number of carries, aged up to about 25, 26, is able to then get paid and have his last few effective years before the reported, you know, we've seen it at times for majority of players, drop off around age 29 to 30 for running backs. Some will hit that wall earlier. The likes of a David Johnson is a great example. He was a guy that was paid by the Cardinals and had essentially one or two more productive seasons. They then got rid of him, dumped his contract, and moved on to a fresh new start. If they take Walker, it will be an interesting area because he's got 4-3 speed. You'd be talking about having a lot of burst and speed. He would essentially be a complementary back, but not maybe necessarily a pass-catching back compared to James Conner. Now, 
if they could put Kenneth Walker on first and second down and use James Conner to be that back and third down in the pass catching, well, maybe that'll be a bit different. You'd be drafting a starting running back there. And what's fascinating to me is, and this is something I mentioned before, all of the teams in the NFL either have a running back they've drafted within the last two years, pretty high, or of a back that they've signed to some decent amount of money, except for what seem to be a couple of teams, three of them to be precise. The Buffalo Bills didn't take a first-round running back. They had, I believe, Devin Singletary as a second. Uh, they have another running back uh, they took as a third-round pick. The Dolphins, who signed the Cardinals' Chase Edmonds this offseason, and the Cardinals, who signed James Conner to a three-year deal. But have Eno Benjamin and not much else behind him. They did not bring in another undrafted free agent running back. Could they really be one of those teams that takes someone in the second round? I think it's possible. It would give them a boost because whenever teams add a fresh running back that hits, we see it have an instant impact on their offense. It forces teams to account for them. They're running, you know, to make sure they can get that next contract. We've seen it be able to carry a lot of teams. The example I think of is have a great defense, have a Leonard Fournette. You've got a Blake Bortles at quarterback. You can make an AFC championship game. The player I think that would be one that Arizona would look at because it was rumored would be Logan Hall. That's another one. Defensive lineman. He's only 283 pounds. He would be a unique player because he's not necessarily a edge rusher he's not going to be your undersized 250 pound player but he's got the athleticism and explosiveness at 280 that you might take a look at him and say is this a guy that either we could gain weight put on the interior as a Calais Campbell or would you be looking at him potentially as a guy who could learn from J.J. Watt as an edge rusher who could probably slide inside at times where you could maybe say eh, drop about you know 10 pounds or so and suddenly you're looking at a player who could be flexible and play inside and out. Almost similar to what the Cardinals had envisioned for Zach Allen. I think that he's going to be much higher on Arizona's board than many people think. Tony Pauline of Pro Football Network, an insider who we had on the show last year, he was one of the first people, I believe, who identified and said that Zayvon Collins would be the pick at 16. A little bit of a shock to many of us who have been eyeing the wide receivers, looking at some of the other players on the board. And it made sense when you looked at the Cardinals wanting to upgrade over Jordan Hicks. Just didn't make sense as much as we would have liked to, given the fact that Hicks did not give up that starting job. And the Cardinals, as we saw, are going to need an edge rusher and still need an edge rusher. Logan Hall has the chance to be that edge rusher, should he make it that far to Arizona. One player that I know the Cardinals are high on was told that they have as a potential top 10 talent in this draft, which, of course, the way the Cardinals draft, I've always told people, is a little funky. They've had Zach Allen as a first-round pick, they called, and they've had Byron Murphy as, you know, top six talent in their one draft. And yet we see them take Andy Isabella over the likes of Zach Allen. I think in a lot of ways the Cardinals have their board set up. They have players and tiers. But they draft for need because that's pretty much what every GM does. Jalen Petre would not be necessarily a need pick for Arizona. On the surface, beneath the surface, he would be a unique slot cornerback slash safety that if you wanted to talk about not necessarily paying a Jalen Thompson, 
letting him walk and get a large contract from a team looking for a safety. Replacing him with Petre would probably be the closest thing akin to the Cardinals replacing Tyron Matthew with Buda Baker. They have Baker under contract. You'd probably be expecting them to pay Thompson and move off of Baker as he ages, moving to Thompson being that long-term safety. This would be a little bit of a different route. Putting Petre, who showed off some solid coverage and has played in a lot of ways like the Honey Badger, a lot of athletic versatility, spatial awareness, and the fact that he's a bit of a bigger nickel. He's not necessarily the small Honey Badger, but a 5'11", 200-pound safety out of Baylor. This would be an interesting move because I don't think he's going to fall there either. We've seen this be a solid safety class. If there's one thing Steve Kime can scout, it's safeties. And if Petra is really that high on their board, you have to think that he's going to be considered there. Now, I, I do think it's one of the cases is, uh, someone asked me this, could the Cardinals look at building their entire wide receiver core by double dipping, similar to taking their linebacker? Someone asked, all right, Cardinals, uh, could they take Jalen Dotson and take a George Pickens in the second round? Obviously, Cardinals were not taking Dotson. Could they double dip? And I don't see it because I think there's too many needs. GM's draft for need, as we've seen. We saw the Cardinals didn't even double dip when they had the opportunity to in 2019. Simply because there's too many other valuable players, I think, in other positions. And I think when you're looking at how Arizona's been built, you're able to say, hey, they've made their move for, they've made their splash. You got A.J. Green, you can man the outside. You don't need to spend another second-round pick on a second player. You could probably just replace him with a draft pick next year, knowing that you've already got your Christian Kirk replacement. And I'm probably going to be putting Rondale Moore in some places, either on the outside or potentially even out of the backfield. Now, I don't know if Brees Hall is going to be one of these players that Cardinals will be seeing in range. Great testing numbers, but doesn't quite have that breakaway speed. Uh, essentially, the way I look at it is I think he's the best running back in this class. Uh, maybe doesn't have the exact same upside, but ultimately probably fits best at least in what you'd call a zone scheme, which would be the best way I could think of it. Not what the Cardinals would run. They are much more of a power scheme. You're talking about a guy getting downhill. That's why Kenneth Walker would be the guy, I think, that they would target instead. There's a few other names that are intriguing. One of those, of course, uh, this is going to be focusing specifically on are the edge rushers. You've got some other offensive linemen. you got a Cam Jurgens, at least, who's probably at least a second-round pick. You're going to be looking, of course, at a, a Darian Kennard. Um, one of the guys that I've liked a lot as well in this case is going to be um, a Dylan Parham. He's got the flexibility to play inside or out. Um, those are the players that I think at least you could look at for essentially a Linderbaum replacement and a starting offensive lineman, if not this year due to injury, for sure by next year. But this feels like it's going to be a spot where the Cardinals look at edge rusher. And I'd already mentioned Eva Katie. Uh, he was early mentioned because he's one of the guys I don't think is going to be there uh, for Arizona. But here are the other edge rushers that stand out the most. There's Michigan's David Ajabo, who's been injured. Look at Boya Mafe, the edge rusher from Minnesota, who some people even assigned to Arizona at 23. You can talk at least about um, a little bit of a faster player who um, I think is a Nick Benito out of Oklahoma. You'd essentially be taking, in a weird way, two Oklahoma players with your first two picks, one of them, of course, being, however, via trade. 
And then there's one more player who stands out, technically two, but one who stands out in particular because they would be my preferred pick. The first one, of course, is a cornerback, Kyler Gordon out of Washington. Crazy athlete, great acceleration. He's a guy I think you could probably say would be a great fit for a Byron Murphy type of replacement. Could be a full-time NFL starter, could be even potentially an upgrade on the outside. Uh, he has tremendous athleticism, is a great tackler, uh, has freakish athletic abilities, but is, didn't quite test, I think, as freakish as people would have thought for the first round. He still has that Washington defensive back mold, and I think that's one of the areas he could be super successful. I think for me, the player of all of those ones that I like the most that might be there would be a David Ajabo, who is athletic, was able to run the passer, um, could probably at least, you could say it was more raw, still learning different points of football. But when you take a look at least as far as for his ability, he fits the best as a hybrid linebacker who's got complete ability to get after the passer opposite Aiden Hutchinson he showed off this year and is also a guy that you could say at least could be a sub-package rusher. He comes back in in time for the playoffs and is able to be an effective, maybe not great, but effective uh, run defender. He's a guy who probably is a first-round pick and a second-round discount, similar to how people view George Pickens, but not with the same type of uh, off-field character questions that a Pickens has. The biggest thing, at least, though, is I don't know if I could take a David Ajabo over when a player that could be available for the Cardinals, I feel like at least could be a, a secret star, would be in Roger McCreary, who I think would be my preferred pick for Arizona in the second round. They have not found a number one cornerback in a long time. McCreary is a very sticky player in coverage, at least. He's incredibly fluid, and he has a physical nature. Now, sometimes they said, of course, well, sometimes you can be a little bit too handsy, a bit grabby. But most of the time, at least, those grabby athletes have turned out super well. He's not quite as long, though. He's got shorter arms. And what happens, at least, is that when you've got shorter arms, a lot of times you'll fall to day two. We didn't see that with the Trent McDuffie, but we have indeed with Roger McCreary. What's interesting, at least, about McCreary is he's got ball production that a Trent McDuffie did not have. I think that the comp that I would look at, this might be a little bit there, but I could think Roger McCreary could be a Robert Alford type of player. A guy who maybe is never a number one corner in the shutdown mold of a Patrick Peterson because of those limitations. But he can play on your number one corner. He can play well. And we see how the Cardinals still have a need at their cornerback spot, especially because uh, even if they do extend Byron Murphy, you've only got a two-year deal for a player who you don't know that much about in the likes of uh, the player that they just uh, acquired who had been signed with the Vikings. Uh, see, this is, a, this is what's bothering me. It's late at night. It's almost about 2 a.m. here, at least, where I'm at. For, uh, Jeff Gladney. There he is. So, my bad. Anyway, continuing and wrapping up with that tonight, I think that uh, the Cardinals are in a unique spot. I would prefer, honestly, to draft and find an edge rusher or be able to at least have that long-term offensive lineman uh, be able to get locked up, especially one who, if we're looking at Rodney Hudson, would be able to man that center position. We'd love to see the Cardinals actually hit on one of those players. What I think will be at least the case is they'll want to look for an edge rusher. Maybe there's an offensive type of... Uh, 
model that they're looking for with another running back in what could be a win now year. I would love to see them honestly take a edge rusher in this draft, but my preferred talent, of course, just due to the ability that I see in the player would be Roger McCreary out of Auburn. That would be my hope for the pick. Uh, We'll find out and get more information likely tomorrow. We also have, of course, two round three picks. Players I think the Arizona Cardinals could target with those round three picks. Uh, Here's at least just a quick little snippet. um, for Uh, You could look at least and see how there's some top tight ends that will probably be available, as well as a few defensive tackles. It's not a deep defensive tackle class, but there's a few guys that may be able to slide into round three. Um, I do like all three of the top tight ends this year in Jeremy Ruckert. I like the kid out of Wisconsin, as well as the big boy, Jelani Woods, although it feels like he's going to end up being a Packer at some point or another. There's an Oklahoma defensive tackle in Perry and Winfrey, who I feel like is going to go in round two. Um, You're also talking, at least, of course, about some of these Arizona State offensive linemen are projected for round three. Um, One of the more interesting, I guess you could say, options for the most part would be a Josh Pascal, an edge rusher out of Kentucky, if the Cardinals do go in a different direction for round two. One of the players I could see Arizona targeting, so remember this name too, would be with their second, third round pick, Danny Gray. I think it was the backup plan. Uh, He was a guy that the Cardinals worked out, liked a lot out of SMU, air raid guy. He ends up fitting the bill of being a 6'2", 200-pound receiver. Atypical for that, he ran a fast 4-3, so almost a 4-3 flat. That'd be really interesting to add as far as in a future A.J. Green target, especially because I don't think they're going to be able to get the Bearcats Alec Pierce. Uh, There's also going to be a couple of running backs that are available on day three, such as Damian Pierce. Maybe you end up seeing a Brian Robinson go there, although he seems to be more of a round four target. We've got one of the players who I really, really like, and perhaps we could end up seeing the Cardinals take, in Tyler Algier, the running back out of BYU, who is essentially a James Conner clone, to say the least. Uh, I also am very, very curious as far as for the likes of James Cook, and one of the other players, at least, that I think that the Cardinals will be very interested to see, at least, would be Zach Tom, an offensive guard, plays at Wake Forest. He's a guy that maybe ends up being one of those long-term starters after sitting a year for a team in Arizona. And, of course, last but not least, one of the other more interesting types of um, players, at least, that I think you could see for Arizona would be the likes of Cameron Thomas. He's a, he's a player the Cardinals, at least, have reportedly worked out, have been able to interview. He's an edge rusher out of San Diego State. He would be one of the players that I could see the Cardinals, if they're waiting for round three and he's still around, that may be an option. Now, the, the, the player, at least for me, if I had to pick and make a little mini, let's say a mini mock or something for round two and round three, I talked about round two, my hope would be for McCreary. My hope in round three would be that you'd be able to see the Cardinals uh, land an edge rusher, hoping maybe then a Nick Benito or another type of a player would fall to that level. And then I think you take either the best tight end or offensive lineman that's available, knowing that you're going to be needing a new one of those positions next year. Don't think the Cardinals are going to go tight end as much as I'd like to say because it feels very much like they're going to be committed to drafting a guy 
And we've seen at least some take on another tight end three who could probably be there for them. And I think that they're going to have at least just a few more talents at running back that are going to be tempting. It would not shock me whatsoever, and I'll say this, if the Cardinals traded for Marquise Brown and with that pick number 100, if they were going to be targeting a Tyler Algier because of their interest and like for James Conner, he would fit that mold a bit slower, but a big heavy back that will run through you. Having him on the roster would essentially be a little different. It would be the opposite of that Ken, Kenneth Walker type of mold. But you'd have a guy, at least for the most part, that if James Conner were to get hurt, he could step in and do the same thing. Then would be able to allow Eno Benjamin to be more of your pass catching back. So we'll see how it lines up for the draft. We'll see where the Cardinals go. They have three picks for tomorrow. Um, I'll be back late with uh, hopefully a bit of another wrap-up podcast for you guys. This one was a bit long due to the importance of the pick. Uh, And the fact, at least, that the Arizona Cardinals, Kyler Murray, and Marquise Brown have made that former pairing in Oklahoma a match made in the desert once again. Thank you. Have a good night. Talk to you guys later. Thank you.